Today's reading is Luke 18, 1 through 14. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, in a certain town where there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men, and there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care about men, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted." Thanks to Katie for reading that for us this morning. We started off the year, and we're talking about five truths that you can build your life on. And the first ones we did is the Bible is God's word. And uh, we talked about how God actually attests to his own word. It carries his voice and his authority. We talked about how your sins are forgiven. The thing that we are sure of in the gospel is that nobody can out the grace of God. It's impossible to do. Your sins are forgiven. And this morning we're talking about your prayers are heard by God. God hears your prayers. Now, I understand that if you want to make everyone feel inadequate all at once, all you have to do is say, we're talking about prayer this morning. And I thought about that this week. Why is it that prayer so immediately makes us feel like we should be better than we are? Right? Every time you bring up prayer, you think, man, i got to pray more. I should be better at praying. And I think these two parables show us something really important about prayer. Jesus tells these back-to-back And the people standing around are learning from Jesus what it means to pray. Now, all through the Bible, you see prayer linked with power. That's what you see most often is prayer and power, the power of God, the power of his Holy Spirit go together. And a lot of times you see prayer and fire mixed together in the Bible. So think about Elijah. When he prays, fire comes down from heaven. Or when the apostles are gathered together praying, tongues like fire come down and rest on people. And I was reading a a commentary this week by N.T. Wright, the really famous British scholar, and he said, you see fire when people pray in the Bible, but whenever I pray, it seems like my matches are all wet. And I thought, man, that is so perfect. Sometimes the ingredients are there, the intention is there, There's no fire. Or you pray and you feel like, I am giving it my all here. I just need God to do something in response. Or I feel like I've prayed over and over and over and over again, and my situation has only gotten worse and worse and worse. Is God even listening to these prayers? We've all found ourselves in that position before. And what I think Jesus is trying to teach us in this this set of parables is that Prayer is something that is both intentional and 
practical. And so this morning, I want to break it up into two pieces. What is the intention that we're supposed to have when we pray? What's our actual goal in praying? And what attitude should we come to prayer with? And then I want to get very practical and say, what are some ways that we, each one of us this week, as a group and as individuals, can begin to move the needle a little bit in our own prayer life? So these two parables are unique and I'm thankful for this, in that they tell us exactly what they're about before he even tells us the parable. Look at chapter 18, verse 1. He told them a parable to the effect that they should always pray and not lose heart. There is nothing tricky about this parable. We know exactly what this is supposed to teach us. And then in the second one, he told a parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. These are not the kinds of tricky parables you get sometimes that people say, what could Jesus possibly mean by this? Luke goes ahead and tells us, here's what you need to get from this first parable. This is a parable about praying and praying and praying and praying and not losing heart. That's what this parable is about. So you get this judge. In both of these parables, you have two characters, and they're contrasted with each other. In the first one, you have this judge, and he's almost a caricature of himself because it says, there is a judge who neither respected God nor man. And you're like, that's kind of a harsh thing to say about this guy until later in the parable, he says that about himself. Okay, just so you have no questions unanswered about this judge, he says later, you know, I don't fear God or respect man, but because of the persistence of this widow, I'm going to give her justice. So this is a person that is the bottom rung for kindness and justice and consideration of others. You're supposed to picture a person of which there cannot be imagined a person less likely to grant the request for justice. This judge is actually emblematic of a lot of judges in the ancient world. We think of judges as trying to do what's right. Okay, In America, we think justice is blind. We have all of these fixtures in our system built into a, 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 an imagination of justice that is fair and equitable. And in the ancient world, they had none of that. In the ancient world, if you thought of a judge, you would have immediately thought of corruption. That's just what they immediately would have thought of. Judges were people who used their standing to take what they could from other people. So this judge is actually not as abnormal as you might think in their minds. And the fact that Jesus even brings up a judge doesn't make them think, okay, this person's going to get what they need. They're going to get what is just. Instead, imagine a judge, and not even a particularly good judge, someone who's not disposed to do the right thing, and this widow. The most powerless person in society at that time would be a widow who comes and pesters this judge day after day after day after day. Could you give me justice? Give me justice against my adversary. So then Jesus resolves the parable by saying, it's not her case that changes the judge's mind. It's not the fact that she had all these great arguments and logic and and she was persuasive. The only thing that changed this judge's mind was her persistence. In fact, Luke records another time that Jesus tells a parable very similar to this in Luke chapter 11. And this one is also kind of a funny parable because in this one, a neighbor has visitors arrive at midnight. And this is actually pretty common in the Middle East because it's so hot that people would travel at night. And so these visitors show up and they knock on the door at midnight. And this guy is like, I I barely have enough to feed them. So he goes to his neighbor's house to get a little bit of bread or some cooking supplies. And he knocks on the door and the guy in the house says, I'm already in bed. The kids are already in bed with us. We don't want to wake them up. Sorry, there's nothing I can do about it. Well, his neighbor continues banging on the door. 
And finally, he rouses his neighbor and he gets him up. And that, that parable says, it was that man's rudeness is what that word means. Sometimes we gloss over and we say persistence. Um, but it actually has a negative connotation. It is his impudence. It is his rudeness that caused his neighbor to answer the door. And in both of these parables, Jesus is doing something really familiar in the, in the Bible, which is moving from the lesser to the greater. If this judge and this neighbor could be forced into or compelled into answering the call for justice out of a widow being a nuisance, then how much more would a good God who loves you, who wants to hear your voice, answer your requests? That's the way he's arguing. If this person would do it, imagine what God would do. If this person, who doesn't care at all about the person that is talking to him and doesn't care at all about justice, will eventually grant justice because of persistence, then imagine what would happen if you were as persistent as this widow. See, the point of this parable isn't just that God is great and is listening. It's that part of prayer is being persistent. Part of the attitude we bring to prayer is, I am going to persist in this. Now, why is that the case? It would be a lot easier if persistence was not part of prayer. If it was just like, I pray one time, God grants it, and we're done with it. That would be so much easier. But Jesus is saying, listen to this, God is going to give justice to his chosen ones who cry to him day and night. Do you think he's going to delay over them? I tell you, he will give them justice speedily. Nevertheless, will the Son of Man, when he comes back, which we're talking about next week, will he find faith on the earth. This is a really interesting connection. Persistence in prayer and faith on the earth. What do those two things have to do with each other? Persistence in prayer is one of the ways that God develops faith in our lives. So your prayers are not just to get the answer to your prayer. The process of praying is something that God uses to grow us. The persistence that we bring to the table when we pray is one of the answers to the prayer that we're praying. That God, by having us petition him over and over and over again, is actually going to transform us into someone who is more faithful, more steady, more hopeful, more gracious, more steadfast in the promises of God. Persistence isn't actually about God in this story, it's about you. So we think about prayer and the problem with prayer being God is not doing what I want him to do when I pray to him. And Jesus is saying, actually, the problem is you're not persistent enough. You're not persistent enough. You're not bringing the right mindset when you pray. I mentioned a few months ago a book called You Are What You Love, which is by a theologian named Jamie Smith, James K.A. Smith. And his, his contention, I think this is exactly right, is that before we are thinking people, before we are articulate people, before we even know exactly what it is we want, we are desirous people. We are worshipful people. We actually have a gut that guides us, both emotionally and intuitively and instinctively. We are people who are wired to be moved deeply. And if you want God to change your life, that's what really needs to be changed. You can change your thinking all day long, and it may not change your actions. And it's not that changing your thinking is bad, it's that if it's just your thinking alone, you're not going to see the kind of life change that God promises. Instead, what the Spirit does is the Spirit comes in and changes us on the level of desire and identity and the deepest parts of who we are and what we're longing for get shifted. 
Because out of the box, we are all designed to desire things for ourselves. We're all selfish, we are all sinful, we all have misguided aims, and we can dress them up in pretty clothes and good language, but at the end of the day, we need a transformation to look like Christ. And so what happens when you pray persistently is God gets down to the very core of who we are, and he starts to reorient our desires. He begins to shift the way that we worship. What is the object of our desires and our affections? The more persistent we are, the more God reveals what that is. It's like with kids, if they ask you for something, you always want to wait a little bit and see if this is actually something they want. I remember my parents would do this to us all the time. Because in the moment, you can't imagine wanting anything else, and then the next day, you totally forget about it. And that's true with kids. But one time, what I did was I decided I was going to take a journal and go through all of my prayers for a couple of months. And I was going to write down, I took a little daily planner on the left side in the morning column, I was going to write down the things I prayed for. And then I went back a couple of weeks at a time and looked back at the things I was praying for, and I wrote down if God had answered them. And it was amazing how many prayers God had answered, but that actually wasn't the most surprising part of it. The most surprising part was how many things I prayed for that were on the top of my list that day that I hadn't thought about since. I mean, we are fickle creatures. And what God is doing is he is helping us by being persistent, hone down what is really important in following God. How much do you think if this judge would award persistence, your heavenly father will award you justice when you are persistent in praying for him? I want to make one other observation about our prayer lives on this point of persistence. And that is, in, with all the right reasons behind it, a lot of times we have been trained to pray in such a way that we have an emergency escape hatch. Oh Lord, I ask you to do this, if it be your will. But a lot of times we don't mean if it be your will, we mean, and if you don't do it, I'm not getting my hopes up, right? If it be your will, and it usually isn't, and if you don't answer, I'm not going to hold it against you. That's, that's a lot of times what we mean because we've had an experience where we prayed for something and God didn't answer the way we wanted to. And we don't want to have to walk through that again. But part of the point of persistence, part of what God's doing to form you into someone is there's a relational dynamic in prayer that is the same with any other relationship. In order to be in a healthy relationship, you have to risk that the other person might not do exactly what you want them to do, and you still maintain the relationship. This is how it works with God. He actually, when you pray, and this is the whole Christian life, we've been hitting this the last few weeks, is to be invited into the life of God. That's what it means to be a Christian, is to get to participate in the life of God. The joy that he has, the love that he has, being reunited with him means we get to be a part of that. As a family, as individual people, through his spirit, we are part of the life of God. It says in 2 Peter, we are partakers of the divine life. So that's relational language. That's not transaction language. That's, that's relational. And relationships take time. And relationships have give and take. And relationships have disappointments. And what God does in our relationship with him is he wants us to actually risk having to have a relationship with him as opposed to asking him for something and not caring if we get it so we don't have to worry about praying to God when we're disappointed. What God does is he actually brings us to a place where you have to engage with him. And what you have to do to do that is you have to continue and you have to talk and you have to wrestle with him. And he wants to have a relation with you that is deeper than whether or not he gives you what you want in this moment. And that's really hard for us to hear sometimes. But if we think about who the two parties are involved in prayer, 
it makes total sense. God asks us to come to him, and then he shows us what's true about him. He shows us what's true about us. He shows us what's true about the world as we pray persistently. Now, Jesus follows that up with another parable. So if persistence is one of the things we're supposed to bring, the second thing, Luke tells us right at the beginning, this parable is about people who trust in themselves. So the first thing is persistence, and the second thing is dependence. Right? These are the two attitudes in these parables. We bring persistence, and we bring dependence. So Jesus says, there are these two guys that go up to the temple to pray. One of them is a Pharisee. So we know Pharisees just based on if you've spent any time in the Gospels, are usually the outwardly religious people, but inwardly far from him. That's what Jesus says. You honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. See, what a Pharisee was is not a legalist. Pharisees were not legalists. They were hypocrites. So they, they, they did require things that God had not said. They did go beyond Scripture. But what Jesus is really upset about is they tell everybody to do those things, and then they don't do it. Right? You, you, he said one time, you guys are so fastidious about the outward expression of your faith that you will cut up your um, plants, like your mint and your cumin and your dill, and bring those as an offering because you're supposed to offer 10%. But then you won't provide justice. You won't seek after what's right. You won't do what's fair. You can be outwardly religious, but inwardly far from God. That's the message of the Pharisees. And in this parable, that's exactly what happens. This Pharisee comes and prays in a way that shows that he knows what he's doing when he prays. Okay, this is the kind of people that you're around where they've prayed before, you can tell. They have all the King James language, they have all the powerful points to make. They can pray in such a way that you're like, man, God is definitely listening to that prayer. And Jesus says the exterior means nothing to God. It means nothing. This Pharisee prays something that's kind of shocking to us, but it's not, it wouldn't have been as shocking to them. He says, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. That sounds very rude to us. And it, and it, it was still rude then, but it actually is more similar to a prayer that, that was very common in the first century where a Jew might pray something like, oh Lord, thank you that we are the people of God. Thank you that we have the scriptures. Thank you that we were not born Gentiles. Okay, so it's still rude, but it's a different kind of rude than it sounds like. He's not just a snob. He's trusting in something that actually gains you nothing. That's the problem with this prayer. Thank you that I'm not like other men, like those outwardly sinful people. But then Jesus is going to compare him to this other person, a tax collector. Right? So we've got the outwardly best and the outwardly worst. If you remember the story of Zacchaeus, tax collectors are the worst, they are just the absolute worst. They've sold out their own people to make money off of them for the conquering power. That's what tax collectors do. They take money from the Jews and give it to the Romans. That's, I mean, there's not a better recipe for being disliked than tax collectors. Now, as you imagine, if you're a tax collector, people would just assume that you're not very religious because of all the cognitive dissonance you'd have to carry if you were going to do that and be a faithful, God-fearing person. So they just assumed that tax collectors didn't have any inner spiritual life. So this tax collector comes up to the temple, which would have been kind of a sight to see anyway if you saw a tax collector in the temple. And this tax collector goes up and he gets down on his knees and he beats his breast. He won't even look up to heaven and he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's his prayer. And Jesus says, I tell you, this guy, that prayer is the one that God desires. 
See, what, what Jesus is basically saying here is the outward casing that you put your prayer in means nothing if there's nothing going on in your heart. And what separates this tax collector from the Pharisee, he doesn't know all the things to say, he hasn't memorized any of the prayers, he doesn't have the outward trappings, but he has a heart that is surrendered and fully dependent on God. And Jesus says, that's the kind of prayer that God desires. God desires dependence in your prayer over anything else. Dependence on him. Knowing that you couldn't make it a minute in this life if it weren't for God. Hebrews chapter 1 says, Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. And we're granted the ability to think that we can just go through our life not thinking about God. And then we're reminded in prayer that we are dependent on God for everything. A couple of years ago, I was reading a, a book by Jerry Bridges called Respectable Sins. And I want to put one caveat on this book. Don't read this book if you don't want to be uncomfortable. Because the design of this book is, we're not going to talk about the big sins that are easy to talk about. We're going to talk about the ones that you're probably committing and not thinking anything about. Okay, it's a very uncomfortable book. And he's like, I'm going to go after the ones that are socially acceptable, but are just as sinful as anything else. And one of the ones that he mentions in there is ungodliness. And the chapter on, on ungodliness was one that I came to thinking, well, I'm, I'm just reading this for academic reasons. I don't have any trouble with ungodliness. Because we think ungodliness means pagan. We think it means just like totally turning your back on God or doing things that are overtly against what God has said. But actually, he says ungodliness is defined as living your everyday life with little or no thought of God's will, God's glory, or your dependence on him. And I thought, man, I struggle with ungodliness. I struggle with going through my life for big swaths of time thinking, I don't really think about God, I don't really think about his will, I don't really think about his glory, I'm thinking about me, or I'm thinking about other things. And what he says is ungodliness is actually that little insidious shift in your mindset that isn't against God, God just isn't a part of the picture. And so ungodliness is what we battle in prayer, because if dependence on God is part of prayer, then its opposite is ungodliness. Right, so one of the things that we're doing in prayer is we're not just persisting, being formed by our desires and what we want and aligning with God. By depending on him, we are eliminating the spaces in our life that we live like God doesn't even exist. Part of prayer is to refashion us and reform us and bring us to a place where we are alert to how much we need God in our daily life. The answer to ungodliness is prayer is those little reminder prayers. And I would say maybe the best prayers that you will pray will be short prayers just like this guy prayed this week. He says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's it. And I think all the time of these little short prayers that we pray, God, help. That's a great, great prayer. God, help. We can get to the details later, but I just need your help now. Or I know a pastor who says everything that, is, everything that people do for God should start with one two-word prayer. Geronimo, amen. <laughs> Geronimo, amen. I trust you. I'm doing what I think you're doing, and I'm on the right track for where I think you're leading. Please make this work out. Geronimo, amen. Here's one that I pray often during the week. God, remember your promises. Remember your promises. Answer your word. 
These are like little snowball prayers that they seem so insignificant in time. But if you go through your life over the course of a week or a month or a year, all of a sudden you look back and you have a huge, huge pile of snowballs. You have all of the boulder rolling because one day at a time, one minute at a time, you said, God, have mercy. Give me wisdom. Give me words to speak. Help me love you. Help me see this person the way you do. These little prayers are the moments that we actually go back from ungodliness towards, oh, God, show me what you're doing in my life right now. Give me eyes to see the world the way you see it, not the way I see it. These are reorienting prayers. They're little two, three, four, five-word prayers that scattered throughout our day and scattered throughout our month help us to see our dependence on God. I want to show you at the end of the Bible another glimpse of what prayer looks like. Because if you go to the book of Revelation chapter 8, what happens there is we see what happens in heaven when we pray. And this is really cool because this is kind of like the bottom of the rug analogy. You know, you see all the threads and then you flip it over and you can see the design. Did you know that when you're praying to God, something is happening? And this is just a glimpse in the book of Revelation. It says, when the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and the seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne of God. And the smoke of the incense and the prayers of the saints rose before God in the hand of the angel. Now, this is weird because it's in the middle of this huge section about the wrath of God, and we could get into the details of when we think this is and how and all that, but here's what I want you to take from this passage. When you pray, things happen in heaven. What this angel is doing, and we actually see this a couple places in the book of Revelation, is God is filling up these big bowls with prayer, and when the bowls are full, things happen. Now, sometimes wrath happens, sometimes all kinds of things happen in Revelation, but You don't know a lot of times what's happening when you pray. You just send that up, and you don't realize that that bowl is half full. And God has something in mind that he's doing. He's seeing all of this at once, and he is waiting until all these people are praying, and all these prayers have come in, and he is ready. People's hearts are aligned. The plan is in place. He's been waiting for this, and then, bam, he decides to do what he wants to do. I think about this in in stories of revivals. If you've read of old revivals, what happens a lot of times is a group of people get together and they've been praying without any sign of progress for months. And sometimes it's just two or three people and they get together and they're just praying, God, would you bring one person to know you? Would you bring a few people into our church so we can serve them and share the gospel with them? And then all of a sudden, in God's timing, things happen. The heavens tear open. God's spirit brings hundreds of people. There's stories of of these revivals where people are so fervent in prayer that they are weeping and crying because they see that God is starting to do something. There's people who are at these revivals and in one story, this person is praying and they immediately fall to the ground because they felt for a moment that they couldn't feel God's presence anymore. Now, I'm not saying that this is your everyday prayer life. I'm saying you don't know if it is or not. 
We don't know exactly what God is doing with our prayers until we look backwards. So we pray, we depend on him knowing that it's his plan. It's not our plan. It's his plan. It's his timing. It's his scheme. It's his vision. It's his goodness that's being poured out. And we pray with him to be a part of those plans. The British pastor Charles Spurgeon one time was, he, he preached in the 19th century at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, which could hold 5,000 people. And it was usually full, and they had no microphone. And so he would preach in open air to 5,000 people each week, and they could hear him in this big, booming voice. And he had started dozens of orphanages. He had this church. He had a daily ministry of teaching and writing. He started a pastor's college. And one day he had a bunch of young pastors come and tour the Metropolitan Tabernacle. And he gives them a tour of the sanctuary and shows them all the places. He says, now I've got to show you the boiler room. And these guys are like, we don't want to. I mean, one boiler room is the same as the next. We don't want to see the boiler room. So he's like, no, I insist that I take you down to the boiler room. So they go down under the sanctuary of the church, and he opens the door to the boiler room, and they see a 100 people on their knees praying for the service. See, what he had cultivated was this boiler room was a prayer meeting that went on every week during the Sunday service. In fact, in a newspaper one time, somebody asked him, what do you attribute your productivity to? What do you, you have hundreds of people coming to know God. You have all these ministries. How are you so productive? And he said, my people pray for me. My people pray for me. The boiler room is going. During the sermon, during the week, their prayer meetings were what powered the church. It's our persistence and our dependence that we come to prayer with. Now, I want to take a minute and get very practical about how to go about increasing our prayer lives. And I, I say that knowing that there's some people sitting in here thinking, I don't really need any help with prayer. My prayer life is awesome. And there's some people in here that are like, I can't remember the last time I prayed. And my goal is, hopefully something resonates to where you say, I'm going to grow in my prayer this week. That's it. I'm going to grow in my prayer life this week, whether it's in the frequency or the intensity or the ease with which you pray. Why would we not want to go before God as often as we can this week? So I've got five quick things to apply to our prayer life this week. The first one is pray out loud. Okay, This sounds so awkward. And when you try it, it will feel very uncomfortable, especially if you're by yourself. But if you are by yourself, try praying out loud. And the reason I say that is this. First, this is how most people prayed up until relatively recently. Did you know this? It's the same thing with reading. People didn't used to read to themselves. They actually, they always read out loud. Even if you're by yourself, you would just whisper and read out loud to yourself. In fact, the first time we ever have a, uh, an instance of somebody reading to themselves is in the fourth century. It's in Augustine's writings. And people were like, what was that person doing? But we have drifted to an internal culture. People used to pray out loud by themselves all the time. And I think we should return to that because it keeps you from getting distracted. This is just a, a basic practical tip. If you're praying out loud, it's very difficult to drift off into other things. So many of you know this. If you pray to yourself before bed, you're not going to get a very good prayer in because you're going to pray, then you're going to think about something, and all of a sudden you're going to wake up and you've been asleep. Oftentimes when you pray in the morning, you're going to start praying, and before you know it, you're on your phone, you're looking for something, you're writing down something you've got to do that day, you're talking to someone else. But if you pray out loud, 
you will ensure that your prayers actually happen. See, here's my conviction. Most praying gets snuffed out before it even starts. We either don't want to, or we're bored, or we're afraid, or we feel awkward. And if you pray out loud, it will commit you to truly spending time in prayer. Number two, pray the Bible. Pray the Bible. So Donald Whitney has a great book called Praying the Bible. And what he says is, you know, the problem with most of our prayer lives is we just get tired of saying the same old stuff about the same old stuff. And you've probably been there in your prayer life. Sometimes you say, am I praying about this again? Am I just, I'm just going through these motions again and again. And Donald Whitney says, God provided you with prayers. He's provided you with divinely inspired, spirit, God-breathed prayers all through the Bible. Just start praying those. Pray those in your own words. Take a psalm, read it, and then put it in your own words. We're actually going to spend some time doing this in a few minutes. Pray the Bible and use that not just as rote prayers, but as a springboard for the things that God thinks are important to pray about. Laura and I have noticed this. We read a psalm every morning together, and it's amazing the things that are in there that we would never pray. I mean, it's amazing. Over a third of those psalms are what we call imprecatory psalms, which are like, hey, would you get rid of evildoers and would you bring us justice? That hasn't really been high on our list of things to pray for. We have not been praying those things. But you get a whole sense of God standing up for the oppressed and the widow and the orphan and people who are being treated poorly if you go and you read those. It forces you to say, God, you care about this? Help me to care about this. So we pray the Bible. Third, we pray with others. Pray with others. This is something that some people are very afraid to do. And so we want to create good opportunities to pray with others, either a friend on the phone or in a prayer meeting or with a group of people. We've, we've got to pray together all through Scripture. You see in Acts chapter 1, for example, when Jesus, he ascends, what are his people doing? They are all with one accord in Acts 1.14, devoting themselves to prayer. In Acts chapter 2 in the early church, they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. Every one of Paul's letters, with one exception that you open up, he says something about how he's been praying and rejoicing in them. This is so common there, but it's become very uncommon for us to pray with other people out loud, to share the things that we're praying for, and then to go before God together. So one of the things that we're doing as a church is, we, if we're going to accomplish what God has for us, and we're going to be able to see what God is doing and get on board with it, we have got to pray more together as a church. And so we're creating an, an opportunity to do that. Each week we're going to have a prayer service on Thursday mornings, starting at 7.30, on Zoom. You can, you can, or at 8.30, at 8.30. So, yeah, that, sorry about that, 8.30. So we're going to pray on Zoom because we can. Everybody doesn't have to be in the same place to pray together so that we can put things, requests, emphases, things that we're striving for together. And if you want to be a part of that, just let me know. I'll send you the link. You can do it from anywhere in the world. And we can pray together as a church. It's amazing to me sometimes. I can spend a lot of creativity on things I want to do and then throw up my hands like, well, there's nobody around to pray with. It's like, well, you've been Zoom meeting with people for two years. Why don't you just do that to pray? God provides all these ways. Let's pray together each week. And last, pray in concentric circles. This is just a really helpful thing that I've done. Start your prayer thinking about your life, what's closest to you, what's one level out, what's one level out, what's one level out. Or start out. Think about the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer is concentric circles starting from the outside going in. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's like as far away as you can get. 
across all the earth. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive our trespasses. This is a concentric circle kind of prayer. It's just a way of organizing your thoughts and your heart to make sure that you have things to pray for. So start in the middle or start on the outside, but move through those layers if you're looking for a way to pray. So to wrap this up, I would say Jesus gives two intentions in prayer. Pray dependently and pray persistently. And whatever practical tips, these may not resonate with you, but whatever practical tips you can find, the point is pray when you don't feel like it. Pray persistently. Pray dependently. Go to your Father who loves you and wants to hear your voice. He delights to know what's going on in your life. He delights to talk to you, and he delights to give good things to his children. Because that's the foundation of prayer, is to go to our God, to tell him what's on our heart, to ask him to provide for us, and to grow in our relationship with him every day. Now, as the band comes back up to lead us in worship, what I want to do is spend a few minutes actually praying. So here's the thing. We have a lot of sermons about prayer that doesn't have any prayer in it. So I don't want to leave here just talking about prayer. I want to pray together. And so what I'm going to do this morning is I've put a couple of verses from Psalm 18 together for us. And what I want to do is I want us to read these verses aloud together, and then we're just going to sit and pray these things. And you may have other things to pray about, but if you don't, we're just going to use these verses to start to pray about what's going on in our